If I, as a rabbi, want to do my part to contribute to Jewish continuity, it is incumbent on me to say yes as often as I possibly can. Are you planning a Jewish or interfaith wedding? Are you lost on where to even begin planning the ceremony, let alone finding a rabbi to help you? Well, it doesn't matter whether one of you is Jewish or you're both Jewish. You deserve a guide. So take a deep breath. I promise it will all be okay. Welcome to Your Jewish Wedding with Rabbi Leanne. Here, I can be everyone's rabbi. (laughs) Yours too. My guests and I will share everything we know to help make your Jewish or interfaith wedding full of tradition and perfectly yours. Welcome back, everybody, to your Jewish Wedding Podcast. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. Us, me. It's just me. Me and my cat. I promised you an update on the Pittsburgh wedding. Thank God. It was all perfect. It went almost flawlessly. We did have a little bit of an issue where the ketubah got left at the hotel. But you know what? We rolled with it. We signed it afterwards. It was beautiful. Everyone was thrilled with the ketubah, with the venue, and we just had a great time. Sadly, I did not get a picture with a penguin, not in person anyway, because I was working on the ketubah issue. And by the time I had finished all that up, the penguin had already gone back inside his enclosure. (laughs) So I did get a picture with a couple of them behind glass. More importantly, I got a selfie with a giant owl whose name was Pumpkin. So overall, I was pleased. Most importantly, the wedding went very well. We all had a great time and the drive was very nice. No complaints for me. Well, welcome to part two of interfaith marriage, the issue as it's discussed in the Jewish community. Last episode, episode seven, we went through a very brief and very imperfect history of the Jewish relationship to interfaith marriage. In this one, I promised you we would discuss current attitudes. And that's what we're going to do. We'll begin by revisiting what we said at the end of the last episode, okay? So I told you all how the National Jewish Population Survey in in the year 20, go back and erase from, I told you all. If you'll recall, there was a National Jewish Population Survey in the year 2000 that created something of a stir. And that's putting it mildly, because it reported that about 52% of American Jews were intermarrying. To make a long story short, a lot of folks in the Jewish community, most folks in the Jewish community, me included, thought that it was probably a pretty bad sign for the state of American Judaism and the continuity of the Jewish faith. The other thing I told you about at the end of last episode was that since then, it looks like we can report based on the Brandeis Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies that 7.6 million Americans identify as Jewish in the year 2020 and forward, which constitutes a 35% increase since 1990. (laughs) 
And in large part, researchers think we can attribute that to interfaith couples, so a couple with a Jew and a non-Jew, raising their children as Jews. And remember, I said that according to the Pew study, a typical intermarried family, so that is with one Jewish parent and two children, if they continue to raise their children as Jews at the current rate, which looks to be about two-thirds of them, that the Jewish population would double in a generation, which is kind of incredible. So we are going to use that as a jumping off point to discuss current attitudes toward Jewish interfaith marriage in the different movements, in the wider community, and in Jewish culture, most particularly in America. Before we really begin, though, I want to go back over my disclaimers from last week. Okay, I know that this is just a really difficult subject for a lot of people, and especially interfaith couples, which remember the Pew survey reported back in 2020 that now has gone up to 72% of non-Orthodox Jews marrying non-Jewish people. So if you're one of that pretty large percentage of Jewish people marrying a non-Jewish person, or vice versa, if you are that non-Jewish person, I want to make sure that you understand that my goal is to make you feel welcome and loved and your concerns addressed in this podcast, okay? So here are my disclaimers. Same ones from last episode. Almost every Jewish response to interfaith marriage comes from the desire to maintain Jewish continuity. I just listened to a rabbi on the Judaism Unbound podcast. I will link it in the show notes. Okay, his name is Amichai Lau Lavi. He does a lot of things with the contemporary Jewish community as it stands. He works for, his name is Amichai Lau Levi. He's a conservative rabbi and he is the founder and spiritual leader of Lab slash Shul community in New York City. So it's a very progressive Jewish community and he was ordained in the conservative movement. He wrote a whole deep dive into the history of Jewish intermarriage and the halacha as I attempted to do in last week's imperfect episode. And he wrote a, a, a long paper, a response of his own to this issue. But when I listened to him on the Judaism Unbound podcast, he said something that really stuck with me that I want to share with you. The issue of Jewish continuity that we're talking about here is not just to make sure that everybody joins a synagogue just like their parents did, right? It's to keep Judaism alive and relevant to the current generation, which is a particular struggle because the current generation is always changing. And I think it's difficult for people to change as quickly as generations do sometimes. But he said Jewish continuity doesn't just mean we want people to identify as Jewish, right? What we want is to keep Judaism from becoming a meme, you know, just like a fringe cultural thing that people relate to. He said, we don't want Judaism to be just bagels on the table. And I thought that that really drove home what I mean by Jewish continuity. So thank you, Rav, for that uh, imagery. And I think that when we're thinking about Jewish continuity, you know, rabbis and community leaders make decisions based on what we think will be best for that goal in the future. But of course, we cannot see the future we can't actually even control the future. All we can do is put our best effort forward to achieve the most good thing we think we can do with it. So we're all doing our best. 
And as always, I am one rabbi among thousands and thousands of rabbis in the world. My opinions stated on this podcast are my own. They do not represent that of my colleagues or of my movement or of all liberal Judaism or of American Judaism. So I really implore anybody who's listening to come at it from that angle, okay? And remember that every rabbi has her own issues surrounding this conversation and to be respectful of people's opinions and boundaries and the place where they are on their path, wherever they might be in this discussion, okay? Another one, I do not have any agenda in this conversation. I don't have an agenda to convince Jewish people to only marry Jewish people, I'm not trying to get people to convert to Judaism. That's not a thing Jews do. And I also don't have an agenda to convince you to go and find a non-Jewish person to marry on purpose, right? Just trying to educate and to help people get into this conversation or understand it a little more. It's a big deal in the Jewish community. I think it used to be a little bit more of a big deal than it is today in 2023. The year 2000 really was a turning point. For this conversation, as I said, just because of that National Jewish Population Survey. So the reaction to it was a bit explosive. And everyone from Reform Jews all the way through ultra-Orthodox Jews, to some degree, thought that it was a harbinger of something really bad about to happen, namely the intentional self-extinction of the Jewish people. We thought that if so many Jewish people were quote-unquote marrying out And I really explained that phrase a lot more in the last episode. But because 52% of Jews were doing that, we thought it meant that they were actually choosing to leave Judaism, to leave the faith, to literally marry out. And again, that didn't turn out to be the case. That hasn't kept a lot of those reactions from remaining stagnant, though, or from staying the same. I know that everyone is starting to think about things from a slightly different angle. But once again, change is slow. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a good thing, right? We want our change to be intentional. We want it to be thoughtful. And we want it to reflect what's going on in the community and what people truly need. But as I said at the end of the last episode, basically Jewish people fall into three major camps when it comes to their attitudes towards interfaith marriage. Okay, Number one, it's the worst thing ever. Number two, it's not so bad we can work with this. Or number three, everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Let's move forward and celebrate everybody who wants to identify as part of the Jewish community. So I'm going to start with worst news first, and I hope you don't mind. (laughs) I'll try to put timestamps so that if you want to completely fast forward over the it's the worst thing ever people, quote unquote, it's the worst thing ever people, then you can do that. Okay, I I will do my best. Blee netter, no promises. It's important to say that before. Yom Kippur. (laughs) Okay. So in the quote unquote, it's the worst thing ever camp are the quote unquote orthodox movements. Now, I want to make a disclaimer at the beginning of this section that not all orthodox people have this attitude towards interfaith marriage, but most of the people who have this attitude towards interfaith marriage will fall among the orthodox some among the conservative classification of American Jews. Okay, I hope that makes sense. So there are some families in the Jewish community, usually, but not always, Orthodox ones, who, when they're faced with someone in their family, marrying somebody who's not Jewish, it is mind-bending for them. I mean, it's almost unfathomable that someone that they've known all their life, even raised loved since they were little, always taught 
how to be a quote unquote good Jew would be marrying somebody or would want to marry somebody who was not Jewish. It's almost like their brain, they just have like a brain freeze and it's like a non-possibility. If you're getting that reaction, if you're a person who's marrying a non-Jewish person and you're getting that reaction from your friends, family, parents, I'm sorry, because I don't know firsthand, but I can only imagine how difficult that must be. You have two things that you love, your beloved and your family. And it seems right now like those two things are at odds. And I can't imagine how difficult it is, but listened and read a lot. And I've, I've heard stories about how difficult it can be. And, I, and I'm sorry. So you will hear about this happening. And I'm going to share a podcast actually where I listen to some stories of people really struggling and even threatening to cut themselves off from this family member who was marrying a non-Jewish person. At the very least, there are a lot of people who have this attitude who will not attend the wedding. So we touched on this a little bit in the last episode, but I want to help all those who are listening understand why that reaction might be a thing. It's because especially the orthodox or more observant Jewish way of life is so involved in each and every aspect of daily life, right? When you wake up in the morning, you say the blessing and you maybe daven, you spend some time in prayer. It affects the kinds of food that you cook and eat in your home. It might affect what you wear, what you choose to wear, or when you, God willing, have children, what you will do to welcome them, where you will send them to school. It affects the way you behave, especially on the weekends, right? If you grew up to be Shabbat observant, to not drive or cook or use electricity or handle money on Shabbat, and now you're marrying somebody who has little to no concept of that, your life will drastically change or your fiance's life will drastically change. Nevertheless, those two lives coming into that marriage will have been so far flung, far flung in terms of the everyday details from one another that it's almost unfathomable that two people from such different backgrounds could be married. You know, along with practice and and the way you express yourself, like you might say like, okay, Rabbi Leanne, like I can wear certain clothes, I can cook certain food. There's also just so much culture and things about the Jewish religion that are a normal part of the yearly cycle for people who were raised, especially in a more religious, religiously observant household, that it would take, it would and does take years and years for somebody to learn who comes from outside of that, of that culture. Okay. There's also a sense that, remember we talked about Judaism as an ethno-religion when we talked about what to do if you're not religious, I think, whether you should have a Jewish wedding if you're not religious. It's something, it's a sense of what it means to be Jewish that comes from being part of that family tree generations and generations back that it can be very difficult for somebody who was not raised in that culture to understand. Now, you may have heard of families who sit Shiva for their children who intermarry. Sitting Shiva is the Jewish family practice of mourning someone who has died. There have been rumors and stories of families where this has happened, where a family member has married somebody who is not Jewish and his or her parents, maybe siblings, have behaved in the same way that they would as if that person had died. I know that anecdotal evidence is still evidence, and I've heard people say that it has happened in the American Jewish community. 
I just want to put out there that if that is happening to you, I'm very sorry. And also that it's a pretty clear that that's really just not a Jewish thing to do. So this is actually addressed in the Aruch HaShulchan, which is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, which is one of the major, con- not contemporary, one of the more recent bodies of Jewish law that large parts of Orthodox Jews adhere to. It says we should not, in fact, sit Shiva. It directly addresses this issue of should you act as though you're in mourning for your child, if that child or sibling or whatever marries somebody who is not Jewish. And the Aruch HaShohan addresses this directly and says, actually tells us what we might be confused with. There's a story of Rabbeinu Gershom, whose child was an apostate. That's the word they use for it, but married somebody who was not Jewish. And in the Aruch HaShohan, he details the story of Rabbi Gershom. And he says that, yes, he married out of Judaism. He stopped practicing. He married somebody who wasn't Jewish. He was no longer associated with the Jewish community. And when his son did die, sadly, before his father, his father sat Shiva for seven days, as you do when your close relative dies, any close relative, no matter who they are. Well, I'm sorry, that was incorrect. There are a small group of people, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your children that you must sit Shiva for. At any rate, Rabbeinu Gershom's son died, sadly, and he sat Shiva for his son for seven days. But then he sat Shiva for another seven days. And the story goes that he sat Shiva for seven days because he was lost to his father and another seven days to symbolize that the child, the son had been lost to his people because he had left Judaism in many ways and never decided to come back. But the reason that we understand that sitting Shiva for a child who is married outside of Judaism is inappropriate is because we consider it a possibility for any Jewish person, no matter what life decisions they've made, to resume living a Jewish life or identifying as Jewish even after they have left. In other words, we keep that door open for them. And even as far back as the Aruch HaShulchan in these old bodies of Jewish law, they recognize that it is absolutely inappropriate and not okay for a family to sit Shiva for somebody who is not in fact dead. So if that has happened in your family or if that's happened to you, or if your parents have threatened that or your family members have threatened that, I'm very sorry. And I'll just say as much as they might be hoping for you to come back to being a quote unquote good Jew, I would I would hope the same for them, honestly. But you have to understand Nevertheless, that for these families for whom it's really unfathomable unfathomable that an interfaith marriage would occur, it's going back to a certain level of Jewish trauma. And I don't say that like it's not just a cerebral thing, right? It wasn't even 80 years ago that a third of the European Jewish population was wiped out by Hitler in the Holocaust, in the Shoah. And we really have carried that forward with us all these generations. We are just now seeing the ends of living Holocaust survivors that it will be possible to meet in our lifetime, which means that the people who were affected by that most egregious genocide are still alive. And for a lot of people, it feels like it's our duty to do everything we can to honor what happened to them and to do our best 
to replace the numbers we lost, right? Because that's what Jews do. You know, terrible things happen to us. We recover. And many people feel that we are living a period of recovery right now. And it's our Jewish duty to do our best to contribute to that. And that interfaith marriage would be a slap in the face to that. I don't agree that it is. We've already mentioned how a couple of different studies believe that interfaith marriage is in fact responsible for helping the Jewish population grow. But nevertheless, the belief is more than just a belief. It's it's like a feeling of wrongness that we should do things that might diminish the numbers of Jewish people in the world. There's also the idea, going back to that trauma, that we've got to stick to our quote-unquote own kind, right? Because every time Jewish people have assimilated into the broader culture with their neighbors, it's not gone well for us, right? We've eventually always been betrayed. And it's the idea of knowing who you can trust and the idea that no matter who the Jew is, at least you can trust them more than we've been able to trust our neighbors in the past. And according to that same Pew study that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode and the end of last episode, as of the year 2020, Jews are increasingly worried about anti-Semitism. And that's not nothing, okay? There have been so many events just in the last five or 10 years, just in the United States, that were overtly anti-Semitic, right? We have the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue. We have Proud Boys and neo-Nazis and protests, things that are explicitly anti-Jewish, bomb threats to JCs going on in this America right now that we're living through. So I think that even if you disagree that it's contributing to the diminishment of the Jewish people, I want to make sure that if we hear somebody who has these concerns about not being able to trust people who aren't Jewish and, and other reactions to interfaith marriage that speak to that trauma, that we look at it as part, at least partly as what it is, which is a reaction to trauma. You know, recognize that the Jewish people are still dealing with the trauma of the Holocaust on top of all the other traumas we've endured as a people. Okay. Now, I know I talked about how second Holocaust, quote unquote, second Holocaust language cropped up right at the year 2000 when the survey came out. There were Orthodox rabbis who were calling it that indicative of, quote unquote, second Holocaust. Well, as of like 2019, I found a newspaper article that in Israel, people are still referring to it that way. You know, Israel is a country that was founded when? In the wake of the Holocaust, right? Not found, but really picked up steam in the wake of the Holocaust because of the sense that Jews could not trust anywhere to be home except for a home that they found founded on their own. And the children who live in Israel are descendants of that legacy. You know, religious intermarriage is super rare among Jews in Israel. You might have Sephardic Jews marrying Ashkenazic Jews, like Jews from different cultural backgrounds, um, Jews of even different skin color or observance levels. But the intermarriage rate in Israel, even among secular, non-religious Israelis, is only 2%. And that is the same as the rate of Orthodox Jews intermarrying in the United States. So you have a population of Jews who is not religious by and large, not religious at all. There are many, 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 many secular non-religious Jews in is living in Israel. And even so, they do not marry people of different faiths the vast majority of the time. So not to go into a break on a downer, but we are going to take a quick break so that I can get a drink of water. And after that, 
we're going to lighten the mood a little bit with the people who say, quote unquote, it's not so bad. (laughs) Some mood lightener, huh? Or intermarriage is absolutely fine. See you then. Okay, welcome back. Let's move on to the attitudes of, quote unquote, it's not so bad, or quote unquote, it's fine. So I need to preface this by saying that the vast majority of non-Orthodox Jews are part of the, quote unquote, it's not so bad camp, okay? I do want to give a shout out to the movement under which I was ordained, the Reconstructionist Movement. Quick history of the Reconstructionist Movement. The founder's name was Mordechai Kaplan. He was a Russian immigrant to the United States from his boyhood. He studied and became ordained and was a professor in the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City, which is the conservative seminary. But he had some strange ideas. His idea was, I don't want to say it was a mix of conservative Judaism, which really paid attention to Jewish laws and really tried to stick to them as much as possible, and Reform Judaism, which by and large threw a lot of the observance laws out the window. That's that's putting it too simply, but you understand. But he observed that Jews in America were very quickly assimilating which means becoming more and more like the people around them, not only in terms of their expression, like their clothing, but also in their practice. Like basically Judaism was not that much fun anymore (laughs) because Jews had moved into New York City and into other parts of America and didn't like not fitting in because fitting in was a huge emphasis for immigrants in the early 1900s, right? So the more Jewish people tried to fit in, the less they found palatable or accessible about their own faith and their own observance tradition. So he basically started saying things like, guys, listen, we got to be like sharks. We got to keep moving forward or we're going to die. Is that a thing actually with sharks? I don't know. I've just heard it. Please somebody email me and tell me if that's a thing. Any marine biologist listening, maybe. I don't know. So He said, listen, of course we have to give respect to Jewish laws, and we need to examine where those Jewish laws came from, and we need to decide if we can still apply them in any way, even if that's not the original intention of them, right? Because we want to hold on to our culture, but if our culture is at odds with our modern and contemporary sensibilities, there's no way that Judaism is going to continue to be palatable for your average person. So the famous definition of the way that the Reconstructionist movement approaches Jewish law is that Jewish law gets a vote in our decisions, but it does not get a veto. In other words, Jewish law is not the final decider of any of our questions. Okay, It it also has to come from us and what we need and want out of a Jewish life. All this is to say that the Reconstructionist movement was the first Jewish movement to be, quote unquote, okay with interfaith marriage. The If you go back and read the response, I believe it was from the 1980s from the Reconstructionist Movement, and it wasn't quite a response. I think it was more like a memo called a resolution. And it said that under certain circumstances, that is that the Jewish person was marrying somebody who was not religious themselves and agreed to help in creating a Jewish home and in raising children as Jews, that Reconstructionist rabbis 
should officiate at interfaith weddings and that communities should accept those marriages and the non-Jews, I guess, as members of the community. So at the time, this was pretty radical stance on interfaith marriage in terms of the official stance of the movement. Okay. It still came with a lot of conditions, as you heard. A lot of as long as is and given that's right. So we're putting conditions of performance and maybe even belief or future intention on these couples. However, it was very, very progressive for its time. So I've said it once on this podcast, and I will say it again. I do believe that it's important to approach all of our Jewish questions with that spirit that the Reconstructionist movement brought, which is let's really make sure that we consider the past and the reason that our community has worked in the way it's worked and what's behind those decisions and decide if that's still applicable because a lot of times it is, or a lot of times it's not for the same reason, but it will still help us, right? So I think that's like a, what do they call that? Jewish scholars on here tell me it's a post, post-halachic approach, halachic approach. I don't know. One informed by Jewish law in some way. Okay. So in other words, we're not looking just at whether getting intermarried is allowed. Okay. It's also about the effects of intermarriage as we understand them in our own time. Okay. Because remember, it's sort of a cycle because if we were negatively, in fact, impacted by interfaith marriage, it would make sense that we would disallow it or discourage it, right? But if we're not being negatively impacted by interfaith marriage, maybe we take a different tack, okay? So I have been reading up on all the different movements' responses, and, you know, two Jews, three opinions, three movements or five movements, you know, like a hundred opinions, but we will we will get through it. There have been a lot of conversation about this, as you know, but as Jews have become less taboo as like a people in America, right? We've become more acceptable to marry. And at that same time, religious adherence of the general public has gone down. And that creates a very interesting situation for us. So to some degree, the intermarriage conversation is basically the same as the conversation that happens among all the American Jewish movements on Judaism itself. To what degree do we fight to adapt to new times? To what degree do we hold on to the past? Remember, the goal is what? To make Jews more connected, to perpetuate continuity. So there is a scholar named Karen McGinnity. She is a Hadassah fellow. She's an author. She is she has the title actually of conservative interfaith expert. I put links to her stuff in the show notes, okay? I listen to her on a lot of different podcasts and she says that actually this connection/continuity issue faces all liberal Jewish couples whether or not they are intermarried. So this issue of continuity is no longer a concern for only intermarried couples. It's a concern for all Jewish couples to the degree to which Jewish-Jewish couples can assimilate, which is high. But, you know, just anecdotally in my own life, guys, I have seen all iterations of Jewish connections between couples. I've seen couples where two Jews are married to one another, where in fact, they didn't grow up really with a Jewish practice or education or anything. And so they don't have a really Jewish setup in their own home for their own children. And I've seen people who were only marginally identified with Judaism, met somebody who was not Jewish. That was sort of the prompt to help them reconnect with 
their heritage and their faith and to learn more. And even for the non-Jewish spouse, maybe sometimes you will see that non-Jewish spouse getting really into it and fully participating in the synagogue and even sometimes converting to Judaism. So as much as I said, getting back to the Reconstructionist movement, I know I went off on another tangent, guys. I'm sorry. I hope by now, this is episode eight. I hope by now you expect it. And I want to say that dancing off onto tangents is a very Jewish and rabbinical thing to do. Okay. So thank you for being along for the ride. Okay. So Judaism through the movements has picked up on this idea of being able to divert from Jewish law as a result of cultural assimilation, the way, basically the way things have changed for Jews. So in the past, Jewish marriage did not include interfaith couples, as we talked about. If you were a Jewish person married to a non-Jewish person, it didn't count, quote unquote, as a Jewish marriage. But since we are transforming the way we approach Jewish law, Jewish culture, Jewish custom, we can make it so that it does. And this is a revolutionary idea, okay? We can make Jewish culture into a culture that does accept intermarriage. Now, a lot of Jewish thinkers are really dedicated and really focused to figuring out the way to do that, that promotes what? Jewish continuity. And that is using the reasons of the past to help us understand our reasons for doing things in the present. That is to say, given that 72% of non-Orthodox Jews are marrying people who aren't Jewish. How can we include those families in the concept of Jewish marriage? How can we not only allow, but embrace interfaith marriage as part of the Jewish community and a vibrant, positive part of the Jewish community as well? You know, a lot of people blame Reform Judaism, Reconstructionist, Conservative Judaism, any assimilation of Jewish people. They blame intermarriage on that right, over the last hundred years. So in a way, like we've talked about, that's, that is the reason why. But I want to argue, and many people have argued, that that's not what leads to interfaith marriage. Rather, it's what leads to the ability to have a life that a Jewish person can imagine sharing with a non-Jewish person. All the way back to the beginning of this episode, we talked about it being unfathomable for an observant Jewish person to marry a non-Jewish person. But as people begin to observe Judaism, not less, but in different ways, shout out to Eliza Ben Shalom, who was on Jewish Matchmaking. She made sure to drive this point home several times in the series, and I recommend you watch it. But we're observing differently, and the differences in that observance make us more similar to people who aren't Jewish. And that means that the way we live our Jewish life is something that is easy for people we love to participate in and to adopt those rhythms of life into their own practice and and feel really happy and comfortable with it. So unless we want to stop association with the non-Jewish world altogether, which is the answer of some insular Jewish communities that they don't really associate with non-Jews hardly at all, But unless we want to stop associating with the non-Jewish world altogether, interfaith marriage is just going to be part of the result of that, okay? In other words, it's a cultural reality, as Mordechai Kaplan noticed almost 100 years ago now, and we can either learn to deal with it or try to hide our heads in the sand. So let's go over to looking into 
some conservative attitudes towards interfaith marriage. Now, I know I hinted in, I think, Finding the Rabbi episode that there were a lot of rumblings in the conservative community about wishing that the decisions around interfaith marriage and especially officiating interfaith marriage and the way we welcome interfaith families would change in the conservative movement. Okay. Rumblings was like an understatement. I found out when I was doing research for this, I myself, I guess, had been out of the loop because around the year 2017, it became a big thing. So referencing an article in The Atlantic from July 2017, six years ago now, there was a gathering of conservative rabbis in New York City. I'm paraphrasing this article to decide what to do about intermarriage. It was a loose meeting. It was not formal from my understanding. So since the 1970s, the conservative movement had banned its rabbis from officiating at, or even get this, attending wedding ceremonies between Jews and non-Jews. But since then, a small vocal resistance to that stance has been building for in, in recent years. There were rabbis who actually left the movement um, or there was this guy, Seymour Rosenblum, Rabbi Seymour Rosenblum. He had just retired from a Philadelphia congregation and he wrote an op-ed all about how he was going to be officiating at the wedding of his stepdaughter and her non-Jewish fiance. And this caused a big stir among conservative rabbis. You know, before this time, before 2017, there had been a lot of pushes for changes to the way that the movement had treated intermarried couples and families, right? Like, by and large, I think most of the rabbis were like, okay, we get it that we can't officiate at interfaith ceremonies. But like, there was a resolution in the 80s that told rabbis and congregations that if there was news of a marriage between one of their congregants or congregants' children and a non-Jewish person, they were not even allowed to congratulate them. They were not allowed to announce the wedding. And they were not even allowed to accept any donations from interfaith couples or families or in honor of them. I mean, I think that there's a big difference between officiating a wedding and being welcoming, okay? So it's one thing to say, like I said, it's one thing to tell your rabbis, you can't officiate a wedding, but then to tell them you can't even like smile at those people when they try to join your synagogue, it just seems so obviously counterproductive to that continuity mission to me. But I do want to say again, these rabbis really thought that they were doing the right thing. Okay. So in the last decade, maybe, you know, surrounding this 2017 sort of uproar around interfaith marriage and the conservative movement, there have been a lot of conversations about how to educate children of interfaith families, how to include interfaith families, how to let the non-Jewish spouse be involved. You know, I think it's a pretty fair way to go. You know, one of the quotes in this article from The Atlantic was from David Wolpe, who was the senior rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. I'm not sure if he still is. So his quote was this, to bless an intermarried union is to in some way betray the very thing that I've given my life to, which is to try to maintain the Jewish tradition. He says, it may be beautiful, it may be loving, it may be worth celebrating on a human level, but on a Jewish level, it's not fine and it can't be made. That is really difficult. It's even difficult for me to read. I can imagine it's difficult for some people to hear. But from his perspective, an interfaith marriage is just not a Jewish marriage, according to Jewish law. And that's a perspective a lot of people share. 
And he went on to say, I don't necessarily feel that someone else's need is my obligation. Someone else may need a rabbi to bless that union or may want a rabbi to bless that union, but it doesn't mean that I have to do it. So my understanding of what he's saying is it's maybe like, um, you know, when there's like a Passover Seder at church, it's like sort of Jewish, but it's also not Jewish. Like it's the right thing, but in the wrong setting. And I also want to say here that there are a lot of Orthodox Jews who do feel this kind of way, who do not have such an extreme reaction to interfaith marriage. They do still mean a con- connection with their children and they're trying their best. But there is the sense that, you know, marriage is a good thing, but like, not like that, <laughs> you know? And I think that that's what this particular conservative rabbi was saying. But there are other conservative rabbis, um, especially ones who were ordained more recently, like Lau Lavi, who are really dedicated to trying to find a pathway through Jewish law so that we can, at least in some way, include these families in our understanding of what it means to have a Jewish marriage and a Jewish family. There was another rabbi, Rabbi Matalon. He said that he didn't see any conflict between performing intermarriages and following Jewish law. He said, we have a view of halacha that considers not just precedent and sources as the only way in which halacha is decided. So basically what I've been saying before, he's like, listen, I'm reading Jewish law. I'm a student of Jewish law. I'm a rabbi. And I know that the rabbis and the commentators who created all those different layers of Jewish law were not just working on the Jewish laws that came before, but using them as a basis to incorporate their current reality. Okay, He said, the Talmud in Jewish law considers narratives and stories and life. And another rabbi, Rabbi Rosenblum, agreed and said, halacha doesn't deal with a marriage between a Jew and a non-Jew, but there certainly are statements within the tradition that the leaders of our people married people who weren't Jewish. So that's what we talked about all the way back at the beginning of the last episode. And I think that Rabbi Rosenblum's point especially was that there, yes, it's true, there is no interfaith marriage in Jewish law. And that's not a negative thing. What that does is not cancel interfaith marriage, but instead gives us space. It's an empty space to create new practices around it. Okay. And going all the way back to the beginning of my discussion in the last episode, their understanding of idolaters in the Bible and in the Talmud and in hostile non-Jewish populations, it's just not our situation now, right? So we need to look at our current reality. So you can see the conservative movement very much moving toward what the Reconstructionist movement did uh, decades before. So in the same article, though, and this is the last point I want to bring up, I think, in, in regards to the conservative movement. Rabbi Julie Schoenfeld, she was the head of the rabbinical assembly at the time. I'm not sure if she still is. And she said, listen, I understand that this is hard, kind of what Rabbi Wolpe was saying. But Judaism is fundamentally countercultural. That means, you know, we've there's always been very few of us. I think I say this in every episode, there's just not many Jews. So of course we go against the common culture because that common culture is not you know, on a fundamental basis, ours. And she says it's Judaism is about boundaries, right? About giving us boundaries for the life we're supposed to live. And I think that's an argument for honestly, a lot of religions. I I think you could say that about Judaism. And I think Jews would agree that that's true, just would disagree on where it's true. I do want to say for Rabbi Schoenfeld, though, you know, I think that we live in a culture that really values getting what you want when you want it and being able to dictate for yourself what you should get and and 
getting the yes on that, no matter what it is. So, and the idea that love means giving someone what they want or agreeing with someone all the time. So I think that even if you do have a conservative rabbi or you do belong to a conservative synagogue, consider that at this point in time, even if that conservative rabbi cannot officiate your wedding or will not officiate your wedding, I am almost 100% sure that it doesn't mean that that rabbi does not want you to participate in the life of the synagogue, right? That rabbi wants to see you at services and at holidays and to welcome your children into religious school. The movement is changing and it's changing slowly. So if you grew up in the conservative movement, if it's very dear to you, if you have a conservative rabbi that you love, but that rabbi just can't officiate your wedding, listen, call me or you know, call another rabbi who does interfaith weddings near you. It's very likely that we can touch base with that rabbi and have a conversation with them and make sure that you are set up for a smooth transition from a wedding ceremony with a rabbi who can officiate interfaith ceremonies and that rabbi who's waiting to welcome you with open arms into a community that can really be there for you in in so many other ways. Okay. So you know, as as Rabbi Lal Levy said in the podcast I heard him on, which I will link to, he said it's not so much of an either or, it's more of a both and. So a conservative rabbi or synagogue both wants to welcome you into the synagogue and cannot officiate your wedding. Okay. So just try to think of that with an open mind. A no on this is not a no to everything. Okay. Let's take another break and come back for the last perspective that I wanted to discuss. The quote unquote, all of this is perfectly fine. Welcome back. I, you know, I think we've hinted at this camp of people who think that interfaith marriage is perfectly fine um, because, you know, remember, we've got these surveys and these studies and they are showing us that it could be actually that interfaith marriage, Jewish interfaith marriage, and the involvement of that non-Jewish spouse or the agreement of that non-Jewish spouse to raise children as Jews or to create a Jewish household or to participate in Jewish life have actually made the numbers of Jewish identifying Americans rise, which remember was the goal of people who said we should not allow interfaith marriage, right? To add to that Jewish continuity and to make sure that we still had Jews in America. They really thought it was the end. 23 years ago, they really thought it was the end of, of the last generation of American Judaism, right? Remember? But because of these studies and because of anecdotal evidence, which I know it's anecdotal, but anecdotal evidence is still evidence. So let's get into that. In the year 2023, the average American is nowhere near as religious as his or her ancestors may have been, right? I think now, I don't know the stats on this. If somebody knows these, email me yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com and let me know what you know. How many people are regularly going to church on Sunday? How many people were raised in a religion, which in the United States would be majority, majority Christianity? How many people grew up going to Sunday school, celebrating more religious holidays like Ash Wednesday or Lent or the Advent, maybe? Uh you know, people are more and more moving away from the observance of religion. 
all the more so, and this will become important in a little bit, Christianity as a religion doesn't really have as many holidays or as many observable rituals as Judaism does. So, you know, we talked about all the way back in the But I'm Not Religious episode, you can be really Jewish in your everyday life and not really be connected to Jewish belief at all. I don't think that that's so true about Christian religions. If you guys have stories or um, anecdotal evidence for how that's not true, please let me know. And I actually would like to have you on the podcast um, or at least tell me about it in the email. Okay. So interfaith marriage, Jewish interfaith marriage can actually be pretty smooth sailing if the Jewish person, it's important for them to have a Jewish life. And the non-Jewish person is just sort of a floater among American culture, you know, culturally American, which usually means culturally Christian. So enjoys the Christmas tree. But other than that, isn't too religious, right? So a lot of times I think people are like attracted to Jews and especially like the Jewish way of life and having a Jewish home simply because it gives them an anchor in that tradition. You know, I always say it just gives us something to do. <laughs> you know, those traditions, those observances, the prayers you say every week, the stuff you have in your house, um, you know, you've got Shabbat candles and you've got the Kiddush cup and you have the Seder plate and it feels nice to have things that anchor you in place within the course of a year, right? It gives you a structure. And so I've heard these marriages with a Jewish person who really strongly identifies or even marginally identifies and a non-Jewish person as if I've heard those referred to as faith, faithless marriages as opposed to interfaith ones, right? You know, I've got my little chart here and I will link it in the show notes, but in the United States, 70% of people are Christian, okay? And then the rest are non-Christian faiths, but 22% of that, the rest is atheist and agnostic. Okay, you've got almost 2% Jews, almost 1% Muslims, and um, point something of Buddhist and Hindu and other world religions. So I've seen so many couples in this situation where they're either, you know, vague Christian or religious, quote unquote, nuns, like the survey reports them, N-O-N-E-S. That's 22% of Americans. When the in those situations, the non-Jewish member, it just truly loves embracing Jewish observances. And it's just really happy with their Christmas tree because it brings up warm memories and they really love the decoration in the wintertime, but it has absolutely no religious symbolism. Okay. So in those relationships, what you'll find is that you've got the Christmas tree, but then the rest of the year, it's like all the Jewish stuff because we have so much stuff, right? There's something going on all year long. There's Passover and there's Shavuot and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, there's an entire month full of holidays, right? Then there's Hanukkah right on the heels of that. A couple months later, there's Purim. There's like always something Jewish to do. Christmas tree is like maybe a month out of the year and then it goes away, okay? So a lot of people who want to reimagine the possibility that interfaith marriage could not only be accepted but celebrated within, you know, contemporary Jewish life is this idea, remember we talked about the Ger Toshav in the last episode. So people who were not Jewish but they lived with us and did all the stuff we do and they were, you know, they were really menches and they didn't believe in other gods and they didn't worship idols and they were just chill and they, hanging out with us and living with us, the Gertoshav, a stranger who lives who lives among us, right? So somebody from another background that lives among us, basically. It's a good a good translation for Gertoshav, I think. So if the Jewish member of the couple enters this relationship with the non-Jewish person and the non-Jewish person is so open and curious and excited, that actually a lot of times pushes the Jewish person of the couple to 
ask questions about, wow, what does Judaism mean to me? Or like, actually, I forget what Purim is about. Like, maybe let's learn about it together. I have seen non-Jewish members of a couple, not rarely either, push the education about Judaism and the Jewish way of life onto the Jewish spouse because their attitude is like, okay, you've got this cool culture and you've asked for a Jewish wedding. Like, so let's let's get into it. Like, let's really learn what it's all about. Like, if we're going to do this, let's do it. Okay. So, you know, I've seen non-Jewish members of a couple whose wedding I have not officiated yet. They're taking online courses. They're going to synagogue classes. They're going out of their way to celebrate Jewish holidays. And the the person driving this often is the non-Jewish member of the couple once again. Okay. So, This phenomenon, by the way, this anecdotal evidence, which I still believe is evidence, is, by the way, why I don't require anything for couples who approach me about having a Jewish wedding. There's no requirement. There's no hoop they have to jump through in order to go forward with planning a Jewish wedding for me. Why? Because I really want that to play out naturally. And I have such a strong faith in how awesome Jewish life and Jewish culture is that I I think that it will. I think that it's so nice to have a Jewish household and to celebrate Jewish holidays. And God willing, we have many, 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 many years before us. These couples have many years before us. And I think to pressure somebody into doing certain things that I, Rabbi Leanne, personally would define as being Jewish or learning Jewish or living a Jewish life imposes my vision of what that is on a couple, which is not their vision. And the best way I think for people to embrace Jewish living is to come by it naturally, organically in their own time. Okay. I have faith that if I officiate a wedding and I'm welcoming and encouraging and I send them resources and I send them reminders that the holiday is coming up and they feel that love and support and they have a sense of that network that is waiting for them to fall back on it if they want to, if and when they want to, that that only encourages Jewish learning, Jewish identification, Jewish observance. Okay. I will say, however, and you can go back to episode six on premarital counseling, that I do think if you are marrying somebody who's not Jewish, it is worth having a targeted discussion on what they think about you being Jewish. Okay. So I think it could be an uncomfortable conversation, especially for somebody who's coming into a relationship or a marriage with a Jewish person who does have a strong connection to his or her Christianity. Don't avoid that topic. Okay. Do have a deep dive into your partner's beliefs, not so much about their Christian or Muslim or Hindu identification, but about what that makes them think about your Jewish identification. Okay. Do they understand Jewish culture? Do they understand the basis of Jewish belief? I don't want to say your beliefs because we all have different beliefs, but do they understand the basics of Jewish belief? Do they kind of think that you know, Judaism's fun and all, but it's kind of silly or misguided or even wrong to be so concerned about all these rituals and traditions and not focusing on belief. Do they think it's kind of cute that you don't believe in Jesus, but fundamentally you're wrong and you're going to be damned to hell? Okay. These are important things to find out about the person you're marrying before you marry them. Okay. So that's my caveat on people who are entering into an interfaith relationship. If the other person's religious identification and ties are strong, please have those conversations. Okay. But remember, going back to the, this is perfectly fine attitude. I'm going to say this once again, according to the Pew study, two thirds of intermarried couples are raising their kids with some Jewish identity and the rate keeps going up. That number is improved from the last time. Okay. So 
all those numbers suggest to us that all the doomsaying is really inappropriate. And the more we as Jewish communities and Jewish leaders evolve into being more inclusive of interfaith couples, the more that pays off. Okay, so going back to Dr. McGinnity, to Karen, she says, intermarriage and Jewish identity transmission are not mutually exclusive, right? Like Rabbi Lau Levy said, it's not either or, it's both and. Okay, we can be intermarried, we can both be intermarried and use that as a vehicle of Jewish identity and transmission. She says, younger adult children of intermarried parents would have been born more recently, would have experienced the influences of those who were advocating for a more accurate understanding of intermarriage, for how to include those couples. And so she's saying that might be why we're seeing the rate of Jewish identity among kids of intermarried couples and intermarried families go up. Why? Because it's easier for them to go to synagogue. It's nice for them to go. They go to the Rosh Hashanah celebration and nobody asks if they were born Jewish or if their mom's Jewish. They just say happy new year and give them apples and honey. And that creates an environment where if people feel welcomed, yes, they are going to want to participate more. So I do have an episode planned called What About the Children? Because the children is continues to be and always has been a big topic of conversation around the interfaith marriages dialogue. So for decades, two contemporary American Jewish movements have accepted patriarchal descent, which means if you have a Jewish father, you are considered Jewish just as if you had a Jewish mother. Now, I used to be really against this because I used to believe that Jews should have one standard for deciding who's Jew. Otherwise, you get in trouble later, right? If you grow up with a Jewish father and a Jewish mother and everybody's telling you that you're Jewish and then you get to an Orthodox synagogue and you get to know the rabbi and the rabbi finds out that you have a Jewish father and not a Jewish mother and tells you you're not Jewish, that could be really, really damaging. And because of that possibility... I used to believe that we really should not accept patriarchal descent, or at least it was dangerous. However, with the development of the state of Israel, now the standard of the state of Israel is that if you have one Jewish parent or even one Jewish grandparent, you are considered to be Jewish for the purpose of immigrating to Israel. Now, this may be a little inaccurate if I'm wrong. Please, please email me, yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com. But I've heard it said, the anecdote goes, if you were Jewish enough to be considered Jewish by Hitler, then you're Jewish, right? So we're going back to that persecution narrative of we need to know that we're safe. We need to know who's a Jew. And we are going to define who's Jewish by the person who would get persecuted by being Jewish. It's a little bit of a a bummer definition, I know. However, I think that being more inclusive and accepting of people who have a Jewish father but not a Jewish mother and saying like, yeah, man, you're Jewish. You have a Jewish parent. Of course you're Jewish. You know, it goes along with our contemporary sensibilities and practices of parenthood as well. It used to be, I think, the common sensibility that the mother was the one who was engaged in the day-to-day, you know, emotional and um, kid-level work of raising children. And now, you know, that's just not true, right? We can assume that Jewish dads will be just as involved in their children's religious upbringing, or we should hold them to that standard, that they should be just as involved in their children's religious upbringing as mothers would have been, right? So, I mean, forgive me, because I think that this is like creeping into the territory of eugenics, but there are also people who say, listen, we know that there are a lot of genetic diseases that go along with being Jewish, and if we marry people who are not genetically Jewish, we are actually improving, our chances of a healthy genome and diversifying the family, making it stronger, okay? So 
second to last, there was a point brought up on the Breaking the Glass podcast, which I will link in the show notes and I mentioned in the last episode, that there is a rabbinic principle. So that is an idea that governs the way we make Jewish law that says, In gozrim gezera ala tzibor ela imkain rov tzibor yecholin la which means, it's a, a bit of a mouthful, it means we do not make rules for the community that the community can't live up to, which is such a powerful concept, right? If we know that the people that are people are just not in a position, they don't live in a culture, a community, or a sensibility that enables them to hold up a law, we, we shouldn't make the law, okay? And that phrase appears in the Talmud three times. It it appears when in a discussion about controlling the specific level of uh, kashrut, of meat and wine that the community eats. It appears in a discussion about whether or not Jews should be able to use non-Jewish approved oil, so non-Jewish supervised oil in the process, and to explain something about livestock. I don't really understand that one. But anyway, the first two have to do with, listen, we live among non-Jews and we have relationships with them and we work with them. And there are very few of us and very many of them. And if we want to have a productive, fruitful, happy life, we can't control the way that Jews only interact with one another so much. Or what? Or what? People will leave. Or things will disintegrate, right? It's once again this balance between contemporary experience and Jewish law. So you can see the example that a lot of the conservative rabbis called forth about that in action, even that far back in the Talmud. We don't give the community laws that it can't live up to. Okay. So I'm going to come back to the idea of marrying in, right? Like I said, this only works if one partner has a certain degree of buy in. To practicing and teaching the Jewish faith, right? But we see this, you know, going back all the way to the idea of the history of interfaith marriage, the story of Ruth in the Bible, which I completely forgot, by the way, to mention in that episode, but it's an iconic story. You know, Ruth married a Jewish person. You can go read this. Go read the book of Ruth right now. Ruth married a Jewish man and he died. And her mother-in-law at the time said, go back to your people. And she said, your people are my people now. Your God is my God. Where you go, I will go, and where you die, there I will be buried. I think that's the quote. I don't know. I'm not reading it. But that idea that somebody can be technically not Jewish, but be an asset to the Jewish people. And in fact, Ruth was considered one of the first converts or most iconic converts and became like the great-great-great-grandmother of King David. So very important, right? It's possible for people to be so connected and to so love a Jewish person that that person is an obvious asset and a win for the Jewish people, right? You marry a Jewish person, the Jewish people win. And that's an idea that I try to communicate to my couples also. You know, the statistics tell us that the majority of non-Jews in Jewish plus non-Jewish couples consider themselves atheist or agnostic or no religion, okay? And they didn't do anything Christian aside from Christmas, like the Christmas tree that I talked about. And who doesn't like a Christmas tree, honestly? You know, I think this is different from someone being able to self-identify as Jewish, right? Because if you're just hanging out with a bunch of Jews all the time, I, I really, I don't think it's appropriate to just say like, well, I've, I've been here long enough, so now I'm Jewish, right? No, I do think that we still need to focus on conversion for people in that situation because that is like that formal commitment. But if we're talking about somebody who's marrying a Jewish person, right, the marriage, the wedding itself is that commitment, right? If you marry somebody with a certain faith, 
and it's a and it's an unusual faith in the United States, you got to know what you're getting into. And we have to assume that those people do. I, you know, I don't want it to seem like this devalues a non-married committed relationship, but, you know, everything evolves and that's something I'm willing to think about in the future. And I will say, you know, to close this discussion on contemporary attitudes towards interfaith marriage, I don't think that interfaith marriages are completely without issues, right? As I said before, I really recommend that conversation about how this is going to impact your future lives together. So if you find out that, you know, you're a Jewish person, the person you're marrying has any degree of anti-Semitic attitude, obviously, phobia, fear, contempt, judgment towards Jews, right? It's not likely to go super well, okay? Because religion can impact your worldview. You know, if you grew up in a certain kind of culture where you thought that all Jews were greedy and money-grubbing and controlled the world, that's something that might reside very deep in your attitude towards Jews. And that is why I really recommend that as a couple, you talk about it, okay? So let's conclude with my personal perspective. I don't know how many of you are here in order to hear my personal perspective, but if you are, it's the time. You know, I listened to the 1840 podcast, which I will also link in the show notes, and David Beshevkin said this quote from the Baal Shem Tov. It says, the Jewish people is a living scroll, and each one of us is one of its letters. And he went on to expound on this, that a letter on its own has no meaning, but letters that connect with one another quickly become meaningful. In that way, every family is a word, every community is a sentence, every group of communities is a paragraph, and so on and so on. Each person matters, regardless of the choices that he or she has made, regardless of the relationships and commitments that he or she has gotten into. Their value does not diminish because of those choices. There's still a letter in the Living Torah Scroll, okay? Continuing on with my perspective, from the Brandeis study, which was 2019, the Beyond Welcoming study, quote, one thing should be clear. When we have inclusive policies, that leads to more Jewish engagement, more continuity. Rabbis who are willing to officiate at weddings of interfaith couples are implementing an inclusive policy, and that has demonstrated results. Okay, so they're saying, we know from our data, from the families we've interviewed, from the surveys we've taken, that when an interfaith couple has been accepted by a rabbi to officiate their wedding, here are the statistics. The couples who had a rabbi as the sole officiant at their wedding, 85% of those couples are raising their children Jewish. 34% of them are already synagogue members. Interfaith couples who could not find a rabbi, 23% of those couples are raising their children Jewish. So when an interfaith couple approaches a rabbi to officiate their wedding ceremony, and the rabbi says, yes, 85% of those couples will raise their children as Jews, will maintain a Jewish household. When that couple approaches a rabbi and says, will you please officiate our wedding ceremony? It's very important to us to have a rabbi. And the rabbi says, no, I can't, or I won't. Only 23% of those couples maintain a Jewish household, raise Jewish children. So to me, despite past attitudes that I've had or past beliefs that I thought were the right thing based on the evidence in front of us, now the evidence has changed. And to me, it's crystal clear that if I, as a rabbi, want to do my part to contribute to Jewish continuity, it is incumbent on me to say yes as often as I possibly can. You know, like I always say, we have no control over the future, but we do have control of the present. 
We can control the choices that we make today. And we can control the way that we inform ourselves about the best way to make those choices. So that's all we can do. Rabbis, regular Jews, community leaders, that's all we can do. And Rabbi Laulevi said, we don't want to become a meme. (laughs) And I agree with that 100%. We don't want to just be the bagel on the table. We don't want that to be the only remnant of what it means to be Jewish. That's why, to me, my job comes down to two things. One of them is not officiating weddings. My job is, number one, education, and number two, connection. I hope that by officiating weddings, I can do those things. I can help you learn about Jewish tradition, Jewish faith, Jewish culture, and I can help you feel as connected as possible to them, no matter who you're marrying. And that's why I officiate interfaith marriages in all kinds of situations. Well, this has been a super deep dive, and I am grateful to you for your dedication and your patience in staying for the entire episode of this podcast. I'm considering split it in two, and if I do, I'll delete this part. But thank you for being here with me. It's been my honor and privilege to have this very important, sensitive, but meaningful conversation with all of you. Until next time. Well, everyone, I have had the best time being your rabbi for this episode. I'm so glad you joined me for another little bit of insight into planning your perfect Jewish or interfaith wedding. Until you can smash that glass on your big day, you'd might as well smash that subscribe button for this podcast. I don't want you to miss a single thing. Remember, you can always find me, Rabbi Leanne, on Instagram at at your Ohio rabbi, all one word, for even more tips, tricks, recommendations, and wisdom on Jewish weddings. If you want to work with me on your wedding, you'll find all the info you need at yourohiorabbi.com. Until next time, remember, you deserve the perfect wedding for you. Don't settle for anything less.